Welcome to IT Visionaries, created by The Mission, your number one source for accelerated learning. On this episode of IT Visionaries, we host our first ever CIO Roundtable with Paul Chapman of Box and Mark Settle of Okta joining us in studio. In this conversation, Ian, Mark, and Paul talk about how not to get fired in 2019, the difference between architecture and architecture, and how to utilize metrics to your advantage. We hope you enjoy the episode. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. The Lightning Platform is a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone is empowered to build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash build apps. Welcome to the IT Visionaries CIO Roundtable with Paul and Mark. What's going on, guys? Hey, how we doing? You know, we uh, were supposed to have a fourth person here, but uh, she no-showed. So we'll let the audience just guess who that is, but is a previous guest on IT Visionaries. So we'll have to pour one out for our fourth guest who never showed. Her initials are AA. Okay, <laughs> yeah. we'll take it from there. She's the first person in the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> so we got, we got some fun stuff. We wanted to do a CIO roundtable with two of our favorite guests talking about what's coming for 2019. You know, is... 2019 going to be any different from 2018. We're going to talk a little bit about maybe what CIOs uh, can do to not get fired in 2019, talk about how we can improve our careers, and some of the technologies that we find uh, exciting here. So, Mark, let's start off with you. What do you think is the first thing to not get fired for 2019? Not get fired. So, one of the things I always think about is, you know, get them to like you. I think it's important when you develop relationships with other executives in a company to have a two-dimensional relationship, which is something I don't think a lot of IT executives actually do. They, they tend to have more like one-dimensional transactional relationships where they show up on a, the doorstep of a colleague and they either want forgiveness or money because IT's kind of like tripped over itself <laughs> or they want some support for an initiative. And you know, there's a social dimension. We all do this, right? Casual, everyday conversation and inter- interactions that we have about our hobbies, our families, the schools we went to, et cetera. So you build up some social capital that just is the lubrication for those relationships. But then you've got to invest some time in really understanding how the business operates through the eyes of your colleagues. You know, whether you go off on a to a sales QBR meeting or you tour the manufacturing facilities, et cetera, et cetera, so that you learn the world through their eyes and then you can really and then they respect you as well. So, you know, I think part of the way to not get fired <clears throat> is to not spend endless hours in conference rooms with members of your own staff showing you the 101st you know PowerPoint slide of the day you know that you've been exposed to and really doing the jobs that the people that report to you should be doing and you should ex- exercise the prerogative that you uniquely have as the CIO to spend time with the other business members of the executive team you know and look for opportunities to insert technology and the capabilities of the IT organization into day-to-day operations. I think that's a really good insight and it's something that might be a little bit contrarian or might sound that way in the, you know, when we get quote pulled for uh for for something of, you know, spend a little bit less time with your team and a little bit more time, you know, outside outside that proverbial building. But I think that that's something that really as an exec, you know, those are the relationships that you probably need to be building to make sure that you get the resources for your people, right? It's always interesting to me how people outside of IT, sales executives, people running manufacturing facilities, when they show up at corporate headquarters, 
they have a knack of just kind of randomly wandering around and <laughs> popping their head into the office of the CFO or the CEO or the COO. And those other colleagues immediately make time, drop what they're doing, turn away from their screens. But an IT guy would never think about just like casually wandering. I, I say that as a generalization, but most IT people would schedule a meeting and there would be sort of topics that he or she wanted to discuss. The idea of casually stopping by and just having a conversation is something that wouldn't occur to a lot of, a lot of IT folks. You're telling me that if the CIO pops his head or her head into, you know, the CFO or CEO's office, they're not just going to respond with like, wait, what is the network down? What's going on? Yeah, right, right? Exactly. Yeah. Come on in, sit down. Let's chat for 10 minutes or something. So I, I, but a lot of that, I think, reflects the, a lot of the personalities and the character traits of many, you know, technical people that came up through engineering or, you know, scientific kind of pursuits. They assume that. They don't want their own people to actually just kind of drop in unannounced. They would rather schedule a meeting about a specific topic. And so they think they would be imposing upon the CFO just to pop their head in. Now, if they had gone out on that trip with the head of manufacturing and visited a couple of plants, they might have some very interesting insights about what was going on at the plant that the CFO would be keenly interested in knowing about. So they don't just need to like drop in to talk about IT business. And that's where you get the bigger seat at the table because you're actually helping to run the business and not just run the IT function. Yeah, I mean, I, I have this term that I've used in the past. It's, it's invisibility is a fate worse than death. And I, I think Mark's absolutely right. Generally, people that come through a, a technical background, or even the reason that drew them into being sort of engineering or software development in the first place was a little bit more of an introvert personality or style. And so it's very uncomfortable to, you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable as a CIO in terms of, Getting, getting out there and being more uh, more socially participative. And I, I saw uh, this chart a number of years ago, and it was showing this sort of change in style from individual contributor through to, you know, manager and, and leader and executive. And you saw this sort of less task-oriented, uh, the task orientation sort of went down and the social participative went up. And that's really how, as a CIO, you have to figure out how do you add the most value to your business. And typically it's not inwardly facing, keeping the lights on and, and, and running the operations. It really is taking this outside in view versus this inside out view. You know, it's really funny. So we were, we were at Salesforce earlier today and we were with one of their GMs and we were talking about like, you know, the rise of mobile, which actually that sh should already have ran by this time. So we we're talking with Layla. And she was saying how she was doing a, a talk with a bunch of a bunch of executives. It's like how many people don't bring their their laptop anymore on business trips, and like half the people raise their hand, right? Which is pretty crazy. But the funny thing, I was thinking about this, and I was like, how many like mid level operators though are still bringing it? I was like, it's funny how the executives you don't need to necessarily bring your laptop. And it's like, yeah, that's because you're not hammering away on an Excel sheet or, or whatever it is, or or writing, you know, whatever large pieces. But it, it's kind of almost like as a CIO, perhaps the less time you're spending on a laptop, the the less like super deep work that you're doing that you might not, you know, should be doing right now, you know? Yeah. No, I actually, I mean, I, I don't know if that in of itself is necessarily the, the indicator. 
I do think that most of the time when people are face down in a laptop, it's sort of a, you know, responding to emails or putting presentations together or something, right? It's, it's you know, I, I use an iPad Pro and with the pen and I'm writing and scribbling all the time on it, as you see here. Yeah, Paul, yeah. Paul has the digital and Mark has the analog, both scribbling feverishly they're, as they're we go. Both, this was the first, actually, when the iPad Pro came out with the pen, with the stylus, it wasn't the device itself. It was that combined with the applications that I used, it was the first time it allowed me to go digital versus analog, but it's the process of writing and assimilating that's the most important thing. But, uh, you know, I'll give you an example, right? This is a simple one. Whenever you're in a meeting and everyone's got their laptops open and they're typing, there is an automatic presumption that they're not engaged in the meeting and they are responding to emails or doing something that is not connected to the meeting itself. Whereas if somebody is got a notebook open and they're scribbling, there's a presumption that they're taking notes about the meeting. And actually the, the you know, you take a paradigm shift, it could actually be the opposite. You could be taking notes on the laptop and writing down a bunch, you know, writing down your grocery list on a, on a notepad. You know, so I, I don't necessarily know that not taking a laptop is an indicator, but I think that, you know, we all have our different styles and what works for us. Do you do screens down? Is it like you walk into the meeting or Paul's meetings, everybody screens down, let's talk. You know, <laughs> it's it make it, it's a little bit of a mix. I've gone in meetings where people say, you know, laptops down and or screens down, and I try to think that that's not necessarily the right way to start a meeting. I, although I do think that people drift in and out of meetings a lot because they are distracted by the device because there's things that get pushed and there's the pop-ups and things like that. So, yeah. it is interesting. So um, at our company. When the CEO takes us offsite, if we have an offsite executive meeting, there'll be breaks when you can open a laptop. And he also requires a, a cell phone call seem to be taken outside the meeting room. So if it's, if there could be important calls, you know, everybody has things to do. You can't, you can't find like a dead zone for two straight days or even one straight day when maybe the head of sales doesn't need to duck out to make a call or whatever. But that's not permitted, not allowed. That's one of the ground rules of our offsite meetings. That's great. What other things do you think is going to prevent our, you know, listeners of IT visionaries from getting getting fired in in 2019? <laughs> I, that's a good question. I'd prevent you from getting fired. I, that sounds like well, uh, that's the number one goal. I could right? get in trouble. I could say, well, I think you should do this, and then you know, um, well, I don't know if it's the number one goal. I think you know, there's always this, you know, live another day as a CIO is a mantra, right? Know, Maybe that's, that's so it, funny. right? That's the joke, right? It, it, you know, but but I think that. You know, I think we've seen over the years, CIOs get fired probably for reasons that make sense that they should. And other times it feels like, you know, they've become the victim of something in the environment, right? A lot of the time, I think there's far too much emphasis on the CIO being the leader of change across the organization. And, you know, I think CIOs are great enablers. I think technology is a great enabler to change, but it doesn't, and, and disruption but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, I never went to school and got a PhD in change management. You know, I think that back to actually Mark's earlier point, I think relationship, partnership, engagement with business leaders and driving to a common accountable sort of set of outcomes often is the best way to drive change across an organization. I think all too often, I think what I do see is the one that I think is the the biggest mistake that, that I've seen CIOs make is we're very good at thinking through the what we need to do and and why we need to do it. We don't spend enough time on the how, the strategy for the how. 
And especially in larger organizations where you have a lot of entrenched inertia to change, injecting tension to drive change is really hard. And the failure often comes from not spending enough time on the how. And so I think if you, you know, they say at any given point, a third of an organization knows where you're going, how are you going to get there? A third doesn't, but they're willing to learn and invest. A third doesn't, won't, never will, is not interested. And if you don't solve that problem in advance of whatever it is you're, you know, you're, you're delivering on, I think you're, you're pushing a, a rock uphill and you run the risk of, of, of a failure and subsequently being accountable for that failure. So actually, I'm going to jump in here because, okay. because I'm going to, I, I recommend to the listeners of the podcast to think about a different question, actually, sort of the, the opposite question, which is instead of what can I do to make sure I don't get fired, what can I do this year to turn what I'm, my current job into a better job, a more impactful job, or enable me to go find a better gig somewhere else in the future? Because it's not bad to get fired if you were the leader, leader of the digital transformation mm-hmm. in a company that fell on hard times and just didn't mm-hmm. have the bucks to go off and implement it. Or, you know, you had a vision about how to expose the company to a whole new demographic of, uh, of buyers or, you know, consumers or whatever, the company's product or services. And for whatever reason, you it couldn't get sold within that yeah. current organizational structure. You know, that's a pretty powerful conversation to have in a subsequent uh, recruiting scenario. So... So I don't, you know, so the downside of the question, the way you posed originally would be like, let's, let's minimize the change. The status quo is kind of working for me. If I could eke another, another year out of this thing, (laughs) I'll be as conservative as possible. Let's not push the upgrade of this system or introduce too much new stuff or, you know, rock the boat a little bit too much. And I think in many ways, a lot of our colleagues are a little, a little conservative in that regard. And you get, you get drawn into the dysfunctionality of the company. So another experience I think that Paul and I have shared is. And I was actually talking to our friend over at Splunk the other day. You show up as a new CIO, it takes about a year to figure out how the company works. You got to go through a budget cycle, understand where the power centers are in the company, what drives the business, et cetera. Then you can bring forward some initiatives that are going to have a business impact. That's kind of year two. You get some money, you implement those. You know, year three, you're starting to see the benefits. But then just like a dysfunctional family, you know, it's like you've married into this mm-hmm. a person. Like when you go to Thanksgiving the third time, some of the aberrant behaviors <laughs> that your in-laws exhibited when you were dating suddenly seem normal and like this is the way the, the world works. And and you've come, become ensnared as well. And you just become increasingly conservative in pushing the boundaries of the envelope. And it's just the way organizations work. Yeah. And it's I, I will say this, you know, personally, it's, it's humbling. So I've been succeeded by people who have come into companies, organizations, IT shops, that have made radical changes that I would completely endorse, some which I never thought of, admittedly, but others which I actually wanted to pursue, yeah. but I had kind of lost my emotional energy and, yeah. and just didn't feel it was possible. That's a great point. I think there is an emotional energy portion to this question as well. I mean, at some point, change is actually a good thing. Too much change too quickly is not a good thing. I think there's a pace of change. Sometimes it's it's better to to move on. And sometimes I think people think that it should happen too much faster. Oh, we didn't do enough change in the first six months. So, you know, let's get the next person in. You, know, you see this a lot in, um, it happens a lot in sports teams. And, and it happens the other way as well, where someone is the coach for too long. Someone's not the coach long enough. Someone's the coach too long. And I think that that's the same in any industry. I just think the CIO role is very, very complex when you think about everything from compliance and security and just the permutations of things that 
you know, it's it's an imperfect world, right? And so you, you end up with things that uh, you do all the right things and still get fired, so to speak. Right? <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that we just talked about with Earl Newsom was about architecture versus architecture. Have you, have you, I don't know if you, yeah, t- yeah sure. But, I mean, like, I think that that's part of this, right? Is like, if you're going to tie, you know, it, it, it to your sports analogy, you know, if you're going to trade up in the draft, for a really high draft pick, you're kind of hitching your wagon to that person. If they if they flame out and bust, you're going to get fired, right? And it kind of feels like it's the same sort of thing. If you invest in the architecture, like we're going to make a big AI push, we're launching a bot, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, if that flames out, like that's going to be your baby, right? So, you know, sometimes you, you're, you're going to be the one getting thrown out with the bathwater in this scenario. I don't know why we're throwing out babies, but you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I think I think one thing that's shifted a little today than, than maybe sort of than in previous years is that maybe outside of maybe some of the legacy transformations that need to go on. And certainly Mark and I both now work for sort of born in the cloud, grown up digital companies where we've, you know, we've got a very sort of agile cloud-based footprint for delivering services to our organization, both to our employees and, and business process. The advantage you get in an architecture like that is you, outside of putting in sort of initial platforms to support, you know, whatever it might be you're looking to support, the changes that we make tend to be sort of a lot smaller in terms of their incremental changes. We don't suddenly have this $30 million ERP implementation that's in front of us, or this multi, multi million dollar CRM implementations where we're unleashing with one pull of the lever this you know, sort of tsunami of change across the organization. And that's where I think a lot of things get themselves in trouble is when you have these just enormous programs and unleashing a massive amount of change on the organization. We're, we're architected today to have smaller on-ramps and, and smaller incremental changes at a much faster pace versus these big, huge, multi, multi-year multi even programs. I mean, and what are what are some of those things that you're looking at for 2019? I mean, you know, is, is this year, is it even different? Like, is this going to be different from last year? Are things really going to be changing in two years or five years? Like what what's kind of the, the outlook, so to speak? I think that if you go back and look at sort of, I'll say, look at, look, how I was sort of directionally aligned coming into 2018, right? And then 2019. And it, it, I don't think directionally you're aligned in a in, in necessarily a, a polar opposite. I, I think that, you know, we see where the, where, what the future state looks like in terms of what our architecture needs to, you know, we have guiding principles that are taking us in, in that direction. I don't think they're wildly changing. I think if, you know, if you're in an organization that has a, you know, a heavy sort of legacy on-premise footprint and you're looking to modernize it, you know, you're on, you should, hopefully you're on a roadmap or a journey to to modernize and move to a, a modern reference architecture that's allowing you to take advantage of today's innovation and, and, uh, and sets of service, best of breed services that are available to us. I think for for me, it's how do I continue to leverage that best of breed ecosystem that's available to me to bring in what I think probably is is going to be maybe a bit more of a bit more of a focus is I say a bit more of a focus because there's there's a little bit more maturity that's emerging here and that's in and around some of the machine learning capabilities that are starting to emerge. We can start to bring in more digital labor into into our environment, into our business processes, and so I think that that's 
probably what I see as I come into you know 2019. Yeah, I, I would agree with Paul. I think a lot of the the newer offerings we see in the startup community are leveraging machine learning or some mm -hmm. other form of artificial intelligence in many of the classic application areas. I mean, I don't think they're inventing new business problems to solve necessarily. Although some people challenge you to, they'll say, you know, this is such revolutionary new technology, you need to step back and think about wholly re-engineering processes or ways of doing business within your legacy organization. But no, I, I think there's there are a lot of new apps that are out there, you know, that are that are focused on. But and I will say, there's, you know, we used to talk about cloud washing. That there were there was an era in which some, all the conventional vendors did something with the cloud, and so they would say, hey, we have a cloud offering here in this this area. I think there's some machine learning washing that's going on, and they're just some of these companies are just using kind of progression mathematics that we all learned in college, you know, many years ago. The more than I liked it, yeah, it, it's, you know, it's, it's not yeah. as sophisticated as you would. No, think it's at the end of the it, day. it's pretty oh, basic it's, for sure. It's I, pretty I, basic, but the speed of 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 the computation um, part, the computation part is getting better and better, and and I think that the emergence of getting value from what has been a promise for a long time is actually starting to emerge. I think it's incumbent upon us in the fact that we're not going to go bet the farm on any one single set of AI or ML that's out there because to Mark's point, I think we're still just dipping our toes in the water and there's a long, long, long way to go. The nice thing about it though is, is that our architecture, and this is I think is what's hold companies back so much in the past, is our architecture has uh, more agility to it that allows us to almost experiment in some ways, turn these things on. And if they fail, you know, people talk about fail fast or, you know, I, I'm not a great fan of fail fast, but you can turn things on and experiment without stopping your business from running if it doesn't fail, if it does fail, right? It's like in the past, it's been this, okay, we're, we're it's like you're on a, one of those roller coasters and you're just about to go off the, you know, the, what they call it, the, the slide that goes down at the top. And it's like, ah, whereas now it's not like that. You know, you can start to strategically, integrate because of the interoperability of the platforms we have, you can start to bring those services in. And are you baking off those technologies? I mean, like, are you like, buy two, see which one does better? A lot of the times there's only one. I mean, they're, they're maniacally focused on attack, tackling a very, very specific problem. If there's more than one, then um, yeah, for sure. And what's nice about that is, is that over time, the other, the one you choose may not actually stay in front of the other one and, and you can switch out as it, it you know, you can have both actually running at the same time. Yeah. Paul talked before about change management. The fallacy or the caution about going down these kind of conversations is all around implementation time to business value. So it is interesting when you go back to the bigger projects that Paul referred to, like an ERP implementation yeah. or whatever. I mean, it would take IT a long time, quarters to maybe years to actually go from the beginning to the delivery part. But one of the maybe positive side effects of that, it gave the business a lot of time to prepare for it, to go into you know production and to think about how they were going to do business in the future. With a lot of the SaaS tools, we're no longer the gating factor anymore. Like we can be up and running in 90 or 60 days, you know, yeah. load it up with data, throw yeah. the switch or whatever. And now it's like the business like, yeah. guys, ready to catch this? Yeah. Like, how's, how long is it going to take to actually get some yeah. business value? So a case in point, uh, in my company, there's a ton of tools, you know, Paul commented like some of these some of these areas we just keep coming up with more new ideas all the time. So in a software organization where you're selling software to enterprises, you know anything that can help predict the sales in the quarter or the work that needs to be done to close deals or 
generate leads or you know those kind of things are incredibly important and there's been tons of machine learning kind of startup companies that each have their own little spin or nuance about how they're going to approach this but what you don't realize there's a whole sales organization that actually has to take whatever tool it is to heart and actually start believing in the tool and yep. the data you know that it's producing yeah. and start to make actually business decisions based on the tool and I, I don't know about Paul I mean I could throw a new sales and marketing and optimization tool up on the board like every month or so but the sales organization's impedance or, or, or you know, implementation time is literally measured in quarters like we used to yeah. measure in IT yeah right so they're still working on something that went live 12 months ago before the head of sales says this is really helping me you know challenge my guys and figure out where we're going to end at the end of the quarter yeah familiarity breeds comfort for sure and and i tell you it is the the pace of technology today is very much outstripping and outpacing the ability for organizations to keep up and you know you're so far out in front of where organizations are actually operating at because at the end of the day when you when you turn on new things or turn on new capabilities or whatever that might be you still have to take orders and ship product and recognize revenue and do all those things there's a sort of entrenched way of operating that an organization back to your inertia you sort of settle into right and it, and it definitely resists change at a certain pace you know, I think you nowadays, I think you're absolutely right. The agility we have in the architectures that we have and, and the the innovation that we're able to bring into the organization, we can definitely definitely outstrip and outpace the ability for organizations to keep up. I, I love this idea of implementation time because I mean, time, time to business value. Okay. Yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, time to business implementation value. sounds like our job. We yeah. can get it implemented. Well, that, yeah. that's what I was just going to say. It's like it's got to be the most poetic justice about this. Like, like, hey, we're just waiting on you guys right it's like i mean that's got to be a kind of a surreal feeling right i had i had one job this is several years ago where i would reject a business case for any new SaaS application that had more than a 90-day implementation timeline from an it perspective because it was a, a company that had multiple operating divisions and if if they wanted longer time i said well basically then the, the divisions haven't figured out how they want to use the tool all the conversation that needs to occur is over on their side yeah. Because I don't have to go by servers. I don't have to construct a DR solution anymore. You know, my lead time is very, very short. I just need to know how much legacy data they want to load into yeah. this and what business rules they want to operate under, right? Yeah, I mean, and that sort of goes back to our, our point earlier, and that is when you talk about sort of time to value piece, you know, we used to have to spec out buying infrastructure and buying software and then implementing that software. And it could be months before anybody even really touched anything, right? And you, at that point, you've already made a massive commitment. With today's sort of SaaS and subscription models, you know, you want two users to start tomorrow, you want them to start this afternoon, swipe your credit card. You know, there's a there's a lot of ways you can get entry. It's like where shadow IT suddenly yeah, pops yeah. up all over the place as well, right? Um, which can be your friend, can be your enemy, you know? So I, I think that the speed is is a different way to measure today. You know, there's always this, I don't know, patience being what it is, right? Especially if you work in an organization with say a lot of millennials that are used to more sort of these consumer or digital experiences, speed to sort of gratification is at a much higher pace than say, I've worked with people that have you know, started in the workplace in the seventies, you know, imagine what the desktop looked like in the seventies. Maybe there was a, you know, a pen and a paper and, and telephone on the desk, right? You certainly didn't have an iPad, you know, an iPad Pro, that's for sure. 
Yeah, I, mean, I, I do find that you know younger people that are coming into the IT or, organization or the industry, they view the CIO role as being sort of the chief technologist. Like you must be up there making these seminal decisions about this technology <laughs> versus that technology. And I try to dissuade them. I tell them, no, really, you just become an industrial psychologist, right? <laughs> because you're, you're you're sort of the CCM, the chief change manager. Yeah, you're you are the one that's kind of rocking the boat, moving the cheese. And some people are not going to like that. And and you can't just leave that stuff to be sorted out on its own. Like you're going to have to, I love Paul's quote, you know, to be a successful CIO, you've got to be comfortable becoming uncomfortable. Yeah, it's like not going to change anytime soon. That's right. for sure. You right. Yeah. Get into their business yeah. and like move their cheese. And, and that can be difficult for everybody. On the kind of back to the, the CIOs getting fired thing. I mean, like, isn't, <laughs> he's, he's, he's you're determined to talk about, yeah, I'm you, hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm sending you up. You know, I think that, that, that part of this stuff is that there's, there's the things that are kind of the splashy stuff and there's some of the I'm going to keep everybody out of hot water stuff. I want to talk about some of the security and compliance pieces because both of you are, are experts in this. I mean, if we're going to make a priority of, of security and compliance in 2019, how much of that is, you know, at the end of the year, you know, if we're sitting at the same, same podcast a, a year from now, people are just like, you know, my, my old, my old uh, boss in the military used to say, you'd be like, hey, Ian, you know, how I, you, you know how I know you did a good job this week? And I was like, he's like, how's that? He's like, because I didn't hear a word from you sort of thing, right? So it's like, is that kind of the how people need to be thinking about, you know, security and compliance in 2019 is like, you need to make sure you get the house right because there's a lot of stuff coming, you know, down the pipe? Or is this kind of like, is this a splashy play? Well, uh, I, I would never say it was a splashy play. I think that one of the biggest challenges, I think, and this sort of touches a little bit on what we talked about earlier and that sort of the inwardly facing part of the role. You know, one of the, I think the, the biggest ways that security gets underrepresented in an organization is a lack of awareness of what's really going on. It feels like it's under the cover stuff. And the, the, you know, if you work really, 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 really hard for there to be no events, we appreciate what we can see, touch, feel, you know, we have an, a, a, just a natural appreciation or lack of appreciation for those things. But there's a natural lack of appreciation. Not, it's not people don't ever say, I don't appreciate security, right? But we as human beings have a, a lack of appreciation for things we don't see necessarily. And so in security and even to compliance to some degree, where you work really hard to, you know, to have meet your you know, regulatory and compliance obligations and security, you know, protection and, and trust and so on. I think that one of the things that's missing a lot of the time is that outwardly facing communication and awareness around what's going on in the world of security. And if you don't have that happening um, or you're not focused on that, then inevitably there's a sort of typically an underinvestment in I think in that space because what's happening is is you end up emotionally selling on why you should be investing in security because hey there's lots of really bad things going on there's a lot of data driven stuff that you can share to create awareness around security and if you're not doing that and then something bad happens then yeah maybe maybe you know you you do get fired and 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 I think that that's incumbent upon the individual to you know be out in front of creating awareness and communicating and, and making sure there's the, the right 
trade-offs and, and risk investments are being made in, in those spaces. I mean, I think that, that that some of the transparency around that stuff, like, you, you know, we talked about, you know, off air about this idea that, you know, sometimes you pitch an idea that, hey, we want to increase our security profile or whatever it is. Say, hey, we don't have the bucks for that this year and something happens and you're still the fall guy or gal, you know, so you're not with the organization anymore. But, you know, hey, that was the right thing to do at the time. I think, you know, looking at that sort of case study, it's kind of, you know, the politicians, if they if they all just fix the potholes and we had better school books, it's like you see your kids' school books every day and you know that when I'm driving home at the end of the day when I'm tired and I hit a pothole, it makes me angry sort of thing. But I think the those kind of like more catastrophic things, maybe there's some, maybe it's kind of a bit of both where is there some sort of like socialization necessary around like, hey, this company did this and got caught in a breach and also, this is how they could have done it with, they could have used data to, to show their case so this never happened. So I, I have a general observation about this, which is applicable to security and other things as well. So as the CIO, you've got to define the goalposts, because if you don't do it, other people will. So you can look at the combination of you know compliance regulations and policies that need to be put in place the architecture, the tools that you're going to use to be able to try to implement those policies and then your operations team that's going to day-to-day yeah. use the tools to make it all work together. And, you know, if you diagnose the health of the patient, you know, and you say this, the patient needs to exercise three times a day and stop eating dessert, you know, if you go into that thing and say, we got to staff up the operations team and, you know, we need PwC to come in here and look at our policies because, you know, that's just not feeling right to me type of thing. And then you do those things, right? And then something bad happens. Well, you know, you can you can have a debate about whether we have the right goalpost, but at least you helped diagnose the problem, set what the goalpost was, and you succeeded at what you set out to do. And not only is that important to do with a CEO or a COO, but it's it's triply important to do with the board because the board is kind of grasping as well. So there's a huge educational component in the security area. And I just contrast this a little bit. So take for example a lot of the other initiatives that people like Paul and I would have. So it could be. Oh, we're going to build a new mobile app this year that's going to like expose our product to some new demographic community that's never bought it before. The business people kind of get that right away. Or we're going to we're going to upgrade the warehousing application, and so the working capital that we have tied up and stuff sitting on shelves is going to, going to go down. Business people go check. Hey, yeah. that's a great idea. You know, yeah. I get that. I get that right away. Then he goes, hey, I'm going to triple the staffing at the security operations center. Okay. Maybe, maybe that's and, good. And you're going to see no material difference in anything. And, you know, why is that important? <laughs> why is that important to be or whatever? So, so more, almost more so than in any other area, you know, CIO, CISO, whatever, you've got to really educate people along the way about why those investments are necessary. And in the, in the course of doing that, you define the goalpost for what success looks like. Otherwise, you're a sitting duck and you're just sitting there for something to go wrong. And it could be you know, the audit team comes in and looks at your policies and says, man, this is like, we've never seen anything as bad as this before or things fall between the cracks. So, so I think a lot of people are very remiss in that regard. They, they should, you know, be very educational in the way that they talk about the goals that they're going to set them for themselves in the next year or year and a half. And do you have some of the, like, what are some of those metrics that you've kind of looked at? Or, I mean, you don't have to get super specific, but what are some of the things that you've seen CIOs do that have been like, you know, industry leading practices or anything like that? Around sort of security and and awareness? Just around like, yeah, around like painting the picture in the right way. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of data driven activities that you can do 
we, we talk about phishing a lot, right? People, you know, phishing attacks, you know, and there's lots of articles and things like that, but conduct them on yourself. H- actually have quarterly or monthly phishing attacks that you do against your own business and then publish those results. Share them at the company all hands, security awareness newsletters, whatever it might be, and actually create that awareness and says, look, look how susceptible we are. We did this against ourselves. And here's how, here's the percentage of people that actually failed the, you know, were susceptible. And oh, by the way, this is the sort of role they're in. You don't, you don't shame by name. You know, you're going to say, look, there were two VPs. There were people that had, you know, whatever it might be, you can then actually goal yourself or goal the organization around reducing that susceptibility by them publishing results on a month over month basis. And you can get very sophisticated about your phishing attacks. You can actually you know, do password um, cracking against your, your AD accounts and you know follow up with individuals that have the password, you know, sort of welcome one, two, three, or whatever it might yeah. be. Um, there's a lot of things you can do to emulate sort of adversaries and, and things like that publish those results and then actually goal yourselves or goal the organization around making, you know, getting better. We had RIT leaders when I was in the army, they would blow torch iPhones that were connected to see, like if you connect into a secret, you know, like SIP or whatever it is, you like get torched no matter what the device is. And so they would send out like a weekly update of like all of the devices across the uh, brigade, they got blowtorched. And it's like, man, you do not want your $800 iPhone blowtorched. Yeah. But it, but stuff like that, you know, like the, you know, 407 days uh, since our last, you know, slip and fall. You do what you measure, right? So there's, there's really no way around it. Okay. So final thing here, we'll do some lighting round as we always do. It's going to be a different lighting round because, you know, it's a different kind of a, we're doing a round table here. As always, Lightning Round brought to you by Salesforce Lightning Platform, number one platform for fast and easy, just like these questions. Number one, favorite technology that you're going to be using on New Year's Day 2019? How about 2020? Oh, that's even better. So, so I'm very intrigued with robotic process automation tools that are out there, particularly to automate back office operations and introduce digital labor. I like that term that uh, Paul used. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Yeah, You snuck that in there. Yeah. yeah. That sounds positive. Even though you're, <laughs> you're taking people out of the job. So, you know, that, no, we move them to doing higher value, yeah, acti- higher value activities. Right. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that by the end of next year, we'll be able to find some opportunities to, to leverage that. Anything specific? Are you talking, are you building in-house? Do you have vendors? We have, you... We're using vendors and one area of focus in the near term is auto renewals, renewing existing customers, especially for smaller kinds of um, customers that we have. Might have 20 seats or 50 seats of our product. You know, we don't want to have a lot of labor touches to be able to take them through the renewal process. So yeah. there's a, a huge opportunity there. Really quick on that. So how do you add in the human component? Usually there would be trigger events, right? Somebody would reach out to you and say, gee, you're six months from renewal. You know, are you gonna, do you want more seats? Do you want fewer seats? What, what are your plans? Would you be interested in adding additional products to the current mix? Because what we know about you and the way you've used our products in the past, et cetera, et cetera. You know, to what extent can that whole conversation be automated to, to, to some degree? Now, I mean, there may be places where, you know, there's some human touches along the way, but if there's 12 touches today, can you take that down to five touches in the future process? Technology for 2020. 
Yeah, I mean, fewer touches, take the work out of work. I think, you know, especially as we start to see the changing demographic of the workforce today, right? As you have this new style of worker and new style of workplace and new style of technology to support it, you know, millennials aren't going to put up with doing standard repeatable tasks, especially if they're mundane. Um, and so our ability to intercept with digital labor or, or whatever it might be, taking steps out along the process, whether it's workplace productivity, which we didn't touch on earlier, we talked a, bit, a little bit about sort of FY or FY19 or 2019. And I think that there's a lot of investment in how do we make our employees as productive as possible? It's not just about our business processes. I think Mark said it best, you know, not a lot has changed in the quote to cash or order to or quote to cash or procure to pay or issue to resolution value chains in the last few years. I mean, there's newer systems to support those, but generally the processes are pretty consistent. So I think that it a lot of it is is around how do we break the codependency on IT. I think the more we try to put ourselves out of of a job, so to speak, the more valuable we become. I think that investing in areas where we can start to digitize or eliminate um, the, the the dependency on on IT, the codependency, is something that you know we're going to continue to focus on. And I like I like some of the technology that's emerging in those spaces. You know, the other thing I think that a lot of times we focus on cost reduction because we think we are producing yeah. labor touches, but truthfully, I think personally the revenue upside is greater because it's the speed of the business. I mean, we're all consumers, right? So if you can source a loan, resolve an insurance claim, you know, in one tenth of the time with this firm than a competitor, and admittedly the, the company that can do it in one tenth of the time doesn't have as many human touches in the yeah. back. But you want to do business with that kind of company. I mean, that's what you want. I'll take the friction out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. I, we have a vendor that is just, just so difficult to deal with, and it always requires our CEO getting on the phone with someone. I'm like, are you guys kidding me? Like, how is this possible? You know, it's stuff like that. It's just absolutely. It's friction. Yeah. 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 And it's like, at the end of the day, your product could be the most seamless, no touches, everything. It's like the most perfect product in the whole world, except for the fact that, you know, once every six months, it needs to get our CEO on the phone for 30 minutes. It's like absolute no go, <laughs> you know, congrats. We're looking elsewhere. What's one of the things that you're most excited about that can enhance collaboration in 2019? We have a lot of collaboration tools already. We might be able to enhance it by eliminating some. No, that's tools great. That's that, great. I that love we, that. that we actually, as, long, as long as Box is still part of your jigsaw yeah, puzzle at the end of the day, right? That goes without saying. But, but you, know, you know, well, Paul will, will be able to echo this. There, there are no real conventions, you know, or rules of the road about how to use different tools. And so, a good example is Slack. I think Slack was intended to be a very kind of terse Twitter-like short response, very focused question, answer, question, answer kind of thing. And people are referring to URL sites and distributing PowerPoint. And I, I've been told about people if I wanted, who want an immediate response to a question who will, uh, what's the, like scattershot, they'll send the message by email, by by Twitter and by- uh, you know, Oh my uh, goodness, that's so real. All and, at the same time, right? And so that doesn't really help. I had a conversation today with one of our folks and I was like, when you at channel, you're talking to no one, right? Like you need to talk to a person, tag a person, don't tag two, don't tag four, tag one, because that's the only person who's going to, who should be responding. The other thing I have to jump in on this one. So um, Paul, you may have read some of this literature. So they've had some very interesting studies done lately about this open floor plan kind of um, mm. office concept that suggest <laughs> counterintuitively, they are an impediment to collaboration in the sense that people come in and they put on um, earphones 
to kind of knock out some of the sound entropy that surrounds it. There's a lot of visual distractions that go on. I think it's been proven that email and text traffic goes up 40% typically in an open floor, floor plan environment. So you're more interrupt driven mm. than you were, you know, in a prior way and in the old cubicle mm. kind of kind of layout yeah. um, or private office situation. So, but it's become so trendy. I've visited several companies in the Midwest that are in the early stages of celebrating the fact that they've completely restructured how people are working. And I think actually it's, it's maybe that that whole approach to creating collaboration in the workplace may have partly run its course. It's very well entrenched in the Bay Area. I don't think it's going to change overnight, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's a little more complicated than than technology. To be honest, I think there's a whole cultural aspect to the organization. When I worked at Sun Microsystems many, 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 many years ago, every single person in the company had a single person office. Now I'm at Box, very open, social, collaborative. But we send a lot of emails around as well as, you know, as well as use other tools. You know, organizations have these sort of, there's a cultural aspect to how an organization sort of interacts with with each other, right? In, in, in some ways, as a CIO, we, we sort of, we can't say, here's your tool. You know, you get, it's like the Henry Ford model. Okay, here's your, you know, you, you got a choice of, you know, any color you want as long as it's black, yeah. right? So you got a choice of any collaboration tool you want as long as it's Slack. I, I think that organizations find ways to work with each other in teams and, and, and so on. And in some cases, you have to sort of watch what goes on and, 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 and learn the rhythm of the organization. And culturally, you know, and some of that actually is, could be from, you know, your, your CEO and how they, they choose to communicate. And if they choose to communicate via email, it'll cascade that way. And a lot of people will communicate via email if they're using, you know, chat tools or, or, or things like that. So it can feel overwhelming when you have access to lots of different tools or, or ways to collaborate. But generally organizations settle, like for instance, if I know that you never respond to, to Slack or whatever it might be, whatever Gchat, but you always respond to a text or an email. I sort of need to learn, you know, who my who I'm sending the message to. And I I find this. I actually find that I'll send someone a text. I'll send someone an e someone else an email. I'll send somebody a Slack message, because I know what channel they're listening on. Oh, totally. And, and back to Mark's point, though, if I don't, I tend to get a little bit sort of, you know, okay, they didn't respond to me on that one. I'll, I'll reach out to them on this one, and then this one, and of course, the lowest common denominator. I'll send them an email because I know at some point. Hopefully they're going to read that. <laughs> I, mean, I, th I think yeah, the most. Here, here's another thing. Oh, yeah. I think I bet you that every one of the of the Clab tool vendors has approached us and said that like if you adopt this tool, email traffic will go down by some. I don't think email traffic is ever now. The rate yeah. of growth may be different, but uh, yeah. you know, even all the way back to I'm going to name a name now. But when Salesforce Chatter first came out, one of the big um, mm -hmm. sales pitches around adopting Salesforce the Chatter tool was going to be that it, it had a huge, you know, cauterizing effect on, on the growth of email and the current level of email traffic. But over time, I'm not really... It coexists. They the, will coexist. The, the thing I think is the best part and the double-edged sword of it is that it's all searchable, which is so helpful. So you can... That's true. Like, the notifications are absolutely insane. But you can go back through and you can search all of the conversations <coughs> and you can look back at, like, Hey, were people having the conversations that they needed to be having or who was having those conversations? Like, why were they? And is that the right way? The downside of that is when you're searching box or you're searching, and then you're, you're searching your email and you're searching all this sort of stuff and all of these different things come up. It's like the list of, you know, that thing is like 45 different, different rows long of like, wait, 
know, if I search, you know, Paul Chapman, I'm like, I'm seeing him in like Gmail. I'm seeing him on Slack. I'm seeing him whatever. Like, hey, did you finish the Paul Chapman episode? You know, all this sort of <laughs> stuff. So you kind of have that that effect of search is like your best friend and then it, it's kind of not. But I think that compared to email where email threading is absolutely horrific. Right. Yeah. And it's like the exact opposite of, uh, of like productivity. Yeah, I think this is where machine learning actually is starting yeah. to, to encroach into this space where it's less about me going and finding things and things coming to me in the user experience that I'm in, you know, that I choose to spend most of my time in. And the reason we're able to do that is the amount of intelligence that we're able to gather on the back end about my, it's sort of like B to C inside the enterprise as an employee or B yeah. to E, right? Yeah, yeah. As an employee, I, I, I have a certain pattern about how I work and you can't force everybody into the, the exact same framework. We all have our own sort of, sort of styles of how we prefer to, um, to work and we have, you know, we, we get habitual about that and, and what you know, familiarity breeds comfort. The opposite of getting comfortable would be an uncomfortable, right? It, you know, familiarity breeds comfort. And so there are patterns that, that we have in, it's like a digital signature and there's intelligence now that's emerging that's actually saying, hey, Paul, Mark just updated this information that you and he were talking about the other day. And oh, cool. I'm going to take a look at it. I don't have to go, what was that information? Or, or Mark's got to come tell me, send me an email <laughs> or, or a text message or FaceTime or Gchat or Slack or whatever it might yeah, be. So true. The, the one I'll weigh in here for those who care about my opinion on this, the Gmail, the thing that tells you, you emailed this person five days, do you want to follow up mm -hmm. that they auto added? Like that stuff is great. You know, you start typing and it fills out the rest of your thing. And I'm like, how long have you been listening to my emails? Because that is exactly what I would say. That's right. And then that combined with the fact that when you put something on somebody's calendar, that it gives them a phone number and the Google Hangout link just automatically now. You're like, woo, that's going to kill a lot of people's business if you can just kind of do that. So that that kind of triumvirate of uh, of Gmail is what I'm excited about for 2019. Yeah, I was at the, I was in a meeting last night. I just came in from Austin this morning. I was in a meeting last night with somebody that I, that he and I were scheduled to go to dinner at uh, 5:30 p.m. last night, but we were in the office in a meeting and uh, I got an alert on my phone saying, uh, "Do you want me to text Ben that you're running late for dinner?" Oh, that's great. Because it knew that that Ben was my appointment for dinner at that time and I could have just said yes. It turned out that Ben was in the meeting with me, but half the equation, and he probably got one saying, do you want me to text Paul? Now, the interesting piece will be when they figure out on the back end that Ben and Paul are actually in the same sort of the, the geolocation and, and it's able to- Do you want me to cancel your reservation? Yeah, yeah or something, right. you know? There's sort, so there's these evolving it, things. It just brings posts, Postmates, right? These, like, the, yeah, these things keep dragons, evolving and they yeah. keep getting more and more and more intelligent on a, on a continued basis, yeah. Okay, final question for lightning round. What piece of advice or thought or snippet did you hear from a CIO about something that they were doing in 2018? Are you going to kind of bring with you for, for 2019 and beyond? Okay, I'll take a hack at this, but it's not as specific as what, what you uh, you were shooting for. So a relatively good friend of, of mine is the CIO at the Jet Propulsion Lab mm. in uh, Pasadena. And one of the things he tries to do every year he schooled me was when he goes home for his Christmas holiday vacation, he tries to forget everything that he did the prior year 
and pretend like he's the new CIO, like he's walking in for the first time. So when I talked before about getting ensnared in the dysfunctionality, this is kind of his personal therapy to avoid that ensnarement so that he can, you know, come back in on January and say, gee, if I just was walking in this job for the first, what changes would I make? Like, what would I, I end up doing type of thing? You know, I think that's a pretty healthy habit to get into. And the other thing I actually tell younger people to do when they worry about career development, I really think you should take stock of what's happened over the last year yeah. in, in your job. And, you know, you can grow and develop in several different ways. You may grow and develop technically. You may be exposed to new technologies, new methodologies like DevOps or something like that. You may have grown from a business perspective. You could be using the same IT technologies more or less, but maybe, you know, you've parentally dealt with the sales organization and for the first time you were interacting with the manufacturing arm of the company. So you've learned, kind of had like a little MBA business experience in the company. And then there's the general management part of it where you've maybe managed people in a different way. Maybe there were consultants and contractors. Maybe there was an offshore service provider. You know, maybe you man you had like a virtual management project role where people from different functions where you were directing or leading. So you really should look back and say, did my IQ go up on either a technical dimension or a business dimension or a people management dimension? And I've benefited from that, you know, and I can do bigger and better things in the coming year. You know, if you kind of strike out on those three dimensions and you do that a couple of years, then then it's time to start looking around for something else to do. You know, I, I love that. And I forget who it was. I think it was Tim Ferriss, but I'm not sure. So we'll just say it was Tim Ferriss. But the, what he does at the end of the year is he, he takes every single trip that he's been on and he like puts them all on a list, which by the way, this would be a great, somebody, if you have this tool uh, that can scrape my Gmail calendar and tell me all the places that I've been, that would be awesome. It exists. Uh, it does? Yeah. Oh man, that's great. But there's a security issue around <laughs> it as well. So we can touch on that in a second. Oh, that's great. <laughs> um, but so basically take all of your trips that your, you went your on. Your wife could subscribe to that service. Yeah, that's way, so exactly right, yeah. And then basically like take your, uh, you know, your top 20% and basically say like, hey, the top 20% are probably the ones that were like the 80% most fun, like 80-20 rule. Yeah. And like, I, oh, hey, these are ones that I'm going to do again next year. And then you scrap the rest. But I think that that, you know, and I did this last year and it totally is great. But I think there's something to do for business for that too, which, which is like make a list of all like the business events that you've gone to and like, hey, which were the ones that actually, you know, really yielded results, which like were the most fun, you know, which were, you know, whatever, what things was like, what activities were, was I doing that like made me learn the most, like, you know, those sort of things. When you look at it geographically, when you're actually like getting out of the office and like, where was I physically going? You kind of get more clarity of like, Oh, I, it turns out when I was moving to do different things, I was meeting new people. I was like, whatever. The final piece of that is, you know, listing the new people that you, you know, met in the past year. I mean, like, who are the people who you felt like, you know, moved the needle or whatever, which is, you know, again, kind of that same sort of like 80 20 rule. You don't need to be, you know, brutal with like, hey, I'm going to not talk to the 80% of people, but, but you do say, like, hey, I, I need to make a point to connect with them in a meaningful way in the next year. I think, you know, yours is a good point. So what happens in a career, uh, inevitably, is you get farther and farther away from your technical roots for, for most yeah. people. Now, some people that want to stay technical will you know, go deep, deep, deep in a certain technical discipline. But that, all that textbook learning and development that kind of launches your career um, really becomes increasingly less important, and it's re replaced by experiential learning, right? Yeah. The experiences that you had. 
in all the different dimensions that we've just kind of talked about. And so, yeah, I think it would be a very constructive thing to go back and, you know, kind of look at your calendar. And again, I, to, to kind of beat, beat the same drum, you say, well, you know, most of my experiences were sitting in the Batman conference room. You know, I did that 12 times a, a week and I had different meetings where people showed me uh, view graphs and, you know, I, I had staff meetings and I kind of turned the crank and I did the same job over and over again to harken back to the point you made before. My job may be very secure, but I really didn't develop myself or my career, you know, in the process of doing that. Paul, what piece of advice or something that you learned from another CAO can help you uh, for next year? I just, I just told you. I mean, well, you know, did. well yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, but actually this is, a, this is a, this is actually a, maybe a, a great example. You know, when you think about sort of career compass and the things that sort of, you know, you orient yourself around from a career standpoint, one of the things that I have in my career compass, I have eight points in my career compass. Ooh. And one of those is, is wisdom of the community and, and, you know, I'm a big believer in the, the wisdom of the crowd and the wisdom of the community. And CIO community is actually a, a very powerful one because we're very willing to share and learn and collaborate with one another. And I think that, you know, there's there's diamonds in that data or diamonds in those interactions. And I think we all learn from each other. And there's, you know, we will have a conversation with Mark and he'll say, what are you doing for this? Or he'll send me an email and say, how do you think about this? And I'll say, hey, look, here's my perspective or here's what we're doing and vice versa. And, and you know, there's a lot of value in not from just like anyone single CIO per se, but the community of CIOs or, or IT professionals and leaders is is a really powerful one to learn from year over year. I don't think you have to get to the CIO level to break no. into that. You could be no. a director, you could be a yeah. senior manager. Oh yeah, totally. You've yeah. got to build those relationships with your peers, you know, at other companies. So many IT organizations reinvent the wheel. There could be three RPA vendors that you want to kick the tires yeah. on. In the old days, we would have just hunkered down in a war room and invited the vendors in and burned countless hours and calories, yeah. you know, coming to the same conclusion that Paul's team already had. You know, yeah. so and I connecting could... our groups. I, you know, I, I connect my my IT team with other IT teams and other organizations all the time. And great ways for people to share, learn, collaborate from one another. All right. Thanks, guys. This is great. You answered all of the questions that my producers had for you without even knowing it. So I just appreciate your time. Hope you have a wonderful holiday. And thanks for hanging out, doing a little CIO roundtable. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce, a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone can build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash buildapps. <laughs>